want to welcome all of you to the morning service here. It's exciting to be here together, and I, I, I've enjoyed getting this message ready. It spoke to me. The, the teacher, the preacher always learns the most, and anything I say today, please know, is most directed at me, but uh, this is a type of message that kind of beats us up a little bit. We're going to talk about patience, the fruit of the Spirit, how to face trials patiently. And we're continuing in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. We just read Galatians 5, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I always wondered when I was a kid why Paul put that last part in there. I couldn't quite figure that out. But you think of it this way. Can you imagine a law saying you shall not, you cannot show love. You cannot be joyful. You cannot be patient. You know, no one's ever going to make a law against these things. And that's the type of things that, uh, that, uh, that we need to show as Christians and the Holy Spirit desires to produce in us. Uh, today we're going to, as I said, talk about patience. And the context is mainly the patience for Christians who are enduring persecution for their faith from James chapter 5. So let's start with just a memory uh, test here. I think we've got a slide coming up with a little jingle that maybe some of you will remember. Have patience, have patience, don't be in such a hurry when you get impatient, you only start to worry, remember Okay, how many of you remember that little thing? Yeah, that was something I tormented my own children with a lot. They always, they always said, thank you, Father, for that fine instruction after I'd sing that to them. But the point is, you didn't, patience is something we start teaching our children early on. It's not really part of our human nature. And uh, everyone struggles with it from time to time. Some of us do it dramatically, and it, and it tends to wax and wane depending on how the day is going. Let's do some examples, like driving, for example. That's, that's an area where we really see patience and lack of patience quite a bit. Uh, not moving through lights. We were up in Goshen a few weeks ago, and it was really busy. We were trying to turn left for my, go see my mother, who was in a nursing home at the time, and there was a, an elderly lady in front of us, you know, that would not get into the intersection on the green light. And so when, it, when the light changed, people started going the other way and she never got to turn. Finally, I was just about ready to start honking, but I didn't want to scare her and get her out into the intersection. And she just, choom, spread off right through it. She got impatient too. Anyways, that's just one thing. People driving too fast, too slow, um, tailgating, that's one of my personal favorites. Um, uh, how about uh, not using turn signals? But my very favorite is if you're on a four-lane road and the speed limit's 65, you get someone in the left lane going 58. After all, no one's out there. You might as well, I like this lane. Ah. <laughs> yeah, that's one. Well, how about waiting one's turn? We always teach kids real early to take turns. 
Most adults have not learned that either. I can tell you that from standing at a pharmacy counter for 40 years. Uh, how about when we go to restaurants for, for our seating, for our food, for the bill? And there's always that person that tries to cut or butt in. Um, wow. But how about in relationships? None of us have any with that, do you? How about you never listen to what I say? How about getting out of the car? Could you get out of the car any more slowly? How about would you stop chewing that ice? And how about this one, getting new hearing aids? And you think you're talking like this. That's what it sounds like to you. But your wife says you're talking like this. Yeah. <laughs> patience. Patience, Tammy. Well, there's also more serious... <clears throat> There's always more serious matters of life. I'll get her in the second service on that. <laughs> Trouble is an invariable part of life. We know that, don't we? Um, Job said, uh, or Job, yeah, Job in Job 5, 7 said, man is born to trouble as flight, sparks fly upward. Just like you sit around a campfire and the sparks go up, that's, we're going to have trouble in life. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have trouble. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.8, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You live openly for Christ, you're going to be persecuted. That's a promise. Um, how about Peter? He says in 1, in 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13, uh, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, let's be honest. How many of us really do rejoice when we share in Christ's sufferings? I mean, this is a hard, this is a hard one, really, when we consider it that the Holy Spirit really desires to produce that sort of activity in us. That's, showing patience is tough. And Jesus has always sums up the matter best when he said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Just count on it. So we can expect it. And how we, how we react to it is largely determined by the degree of patience there or lack thereof that we show. And James tells us that we need to be on guard against wrong reactions to that. You remember, one of my favorite examples of this in Scripture is the Apostle Paul, who's my personal hero, by the way, uh, he was arrested one of the many times and hauled before the Sanhedrin. He gets in there, it's kind of dark, he can't see well, and he's, he says, uh, I've lived in good conscience before God and men up to this day. And someone says, hey, someone smack him on the mouth. Whack. Now, no one likes to be smacked in the mouth, right? Particularly when you said something that was true. But, uh, and he, and uh, he said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. He didn't realize he was talking to the high priest. And when someone pointed that out to him, he was quick to pull back from that and even quoted scripture that you shouldn't speak to the high priest like that. So even a luminary figure like Paul, when smacked in the mouth, didn't act so nice. Uh, he didn't show the patience. He clearly wasn't rejoicing in getting uh, smacked in the mouth. But if you truly want to honor God with our lives, we must show patience in our lives, really in both good times and bad. 
And uh, in, this, in these verses, James is going to give us six practical perspectives that we can hang our hat on to try to produce patience as we go through our Christian walk. The first thing, if you want to be patient, according to James uh, 5, 7, and 8, you anticipate the Lord's coming. Anticipate the Lord's coming. Now, we all know Jesus is coming back. And that's one of the, it's a very consistent theme through scriptures. In, in verses seven and eight, it says this, be patient therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. He uses an illustration that everyone would understand. And then he says, you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And, uh, and in verse 9, James adds, the judge is standing at the door. So in this, in this passage, he's referring to the imminent return of Jesus. James no doubt thought it would happen in his lifetime and every generation since thought it would happen. I kind of wouldn't be surprised if it happens in my lifetime, but it's going to happen. We need to keep in mind that God doesn't reckon time like human beings do. God is eternal, so time is meaningless to God. At the appointed time, he, Jesus will return. And it really, the word used here is, it means more than just his return. It means his presence. And focusing on the return and presence of Jesus will motivate any believer to godly living, which includes the fruit of patience. John sums it up in John, uh, 1 John 3, 2 to 3. Beloved, we are now God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So he says, we're Christians now. We're on our route. We're, we're getting more like Christ every day, hopefully, but what we're going to be in the end, it really hasn't happened yet. Well, what's that? But we know that when he, that's Jesus, appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Think of that, friends. By the time God's done with us, we are going to be like Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not anywhere close to that yet. But that's the promise. And what's our response to that? Verse 9, And everyone who, ha who thus hopes in him, Jesus, purifies himself, even as he, that's Jesus, is pure. So we're supposed to be watching for the return of Jesus. You know, think about it. What would we, if we, would, if we knew Jesus was coming back this moment, would we be watching this TV show? Would we be on this website? Would we be thinking these thoughts? Would we be doing this activity? That's the type of mindset we're supposed to have for the imminent return of Jesus. Uh, this fall, uh, this summer earlier, we went to Yellowstone National Park. It was a trip that we planned for two years, and everything went exactly as we hoped. Just one of those rare moments in life. And one of the things we saw there was called Grand Geyser. My son-in-law researched it and found it. Now, when you approach that, we have a couple slides of that here. It just, it, if you look at when you're approaching it, it just looks like a moonscape, basically. Uh, a hole in the ground. But as you watch it, it starts to have activity. You've got this little middle one. That's a turbine geyser. That's a vent geyser. And that's the grand geysers. It's starting. But this, this area around it would fill up 
And you'd think it's, you know, every 60 to 70 minutes, you'd think, well, it's going to go now. This little turbine would start going, but the water would go down. Nothing happened. You know, like we get these people who say, God's coming back on September 14th or whatever. And you see some signs, but it doesn't happen. Well, it turns out after waiting an hour, probably the full amount, I was looking away when it actually took off. And you can show what it looks like. I mean, it's an amazing thing, and it goes on a long time. Another example of that, waiting for Jesus' return, we should be kind of like my little two-year-old granddaughter who lives in Colorado. The last couple times we've been out there, her parents say, now, Grandma and Grandpa are coming soon. She goes to the window of her bedroom, and as we pull up there, you see her in the window watching. That's how we're supposed to be, our mindset towards the imminent return of Jesus. Now, James uses a very straightforward illustration to make his point about being patient. Every one of his day would have understood it. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. Now, we just came through a very dry August. Uh, I'll admit, I grew up on a farm. I haven't been there for 40 years, but anytime something like that happens, I'm filled with anxiety. I don't know why, but I am. Um, you know, I, I've never seen really God fail us totally. I don't know why that I still wonder, but I do. And uh, in, 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 in Palestine or in Israel, the, the early rains come in the time of the fall planting, which is in October, November, and the late rains arrive in April and March. And this requires a lot of patience. The farmer puts in all this effort, and really, you don't know if it's going to turn out till the very end. Uh, Virgil Zimmerman, who just passed this last year, was a, ve a very outspoken, funny guy. I loved him. And he, he would always say, you don't count on nothing until it's in the barn. And I think farmers have to be that way about it. You just, you need patience. And uh, so just as a farm, farmer patiently waits through the entire growing season for a crop, we believers are to wait patiently for the return of Jesus. James instructs him in verse 8, and us establish your hearts. This means to strengthen or make fast, to just set your mind firmly that this is going to happen and I am going to live in the light of it. As often as I remember, I'm going to conform my life into a manner that if Jesus would come now, I'm not going to hang my head in shame. That's how we're supposed to do it. And clearly, that's going to require patience. So, want to be more patient? Anticipate the Lord's coming. Secondly, recognize the Lord's judgment. Recognize the Lord's judgment. Now, the first part of verse 11, it says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, here Jesus predi or James predicts Jesus as a judge standing outside the chambers about ready to enter the room, the courtroom. And this is the flip side of the first point, is that we're supposed to anxiously await the return of Jesus. This is the flip side, that when Jesus comes, he, there will be a judgment of believers. And we need to keep that in mind. And uh, he says, you know, we need to be ready. So in, with this in mind, he says, don't grumble against each other. I mean, you can just hear, and we've all lived long enough to see 
that that's a real, that can be a real problem in churches. Don't grumble because uh, every time I've ever seen trouble start in churches, it's been preceded by grumbling. And unfortunately, that was a, that kind of marked my early church experience. I remember Tammy and I were dating in high school and she'd come over on Sunday afternoons and one time she asked me, why is everyone so upset on Sundays? Well, that was a knife in the heart, but the truth is because everyone was grumbling and about each other. And we got home and we grumbled about the grumbling, probably excused our own grumbling, but you know how that is. Well, grumbling and division go hand in hand. And he, you know what? Jesus gave us a direct command for that. And this is one of my own little theories here. He said in Matthew 18, 15, he commanded us, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Some, some uh, translations say just the two of you. Now, I've got this theory that that is at least number two on the list of the most frequently disobeyed direct commands of Jesus. Because what is our first reaction when someone hurts us? You go tell a friend. And then even if you do go make it right with the person that you think did that, what about the friends you've told about it and the people they've told about it? Grumbling is just like wave activity. It gets bigger and bigger. It gets to be like a snowball rolling down a hill. It it's, can be real trouble. So if you want to be obedient, if someone hurts you, go to them about it. Don't go to someone else. And Jesus also says if someone's doing something you don't like, you see that speck in their eye, take this old log out of your eye first before you do it. Jesus had it so right, but those aren't comfortable things to read. So we tend to not think about them. Well, anyhow, sorry, but that's the truth. And that's been my experience as a pastor. That disobedience to that particular direct command of Jesus has caused more trouble that I've experienced in churches than anything else combined. That's where it's rooted right there is direct disobedience to that simple, direct, simple to understand command. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a judgment. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 quick. We're just going to go through this quickly. We could have a whole sermon on this. Now, this is a judgment of believers, and it's going to happen after the rapture of the church. And it's not going to be for heaven or hell. Heaven or hell is decided when we believe in Jesus as our Savior. But after we're Christians, then we continue to live and we're building on a foundation. And how we build on that, the acts and, and lack of acts in our everyday lives will be judged when Jesus returns. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes there, But I, brothers, would not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, because you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still in the flesh. So the Corinthians were very immature believers, very sinful believers yet. Uh, he was, if you read the Corinthian letters, it's a series of rebukes against the things that they're doing. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, I mean, e grumbling, are you not of the flesh and only behaving in a human way? For one says, oh, I follow Paul. Huh, well, I follow Apollos. Uh, are you not really being, hu- merely being human? 
What then is Apollos and what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase or the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive according to wages according to his labor. This is the judgment he's talking about. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Okay, think back to when you became a believer. Now this is talking about your life and the, the acts and the lack of activities that you've had since that time. Verse 10 says, according to the grace of God giving me, like a skilled master builder, I have laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. But let's take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now let's stop and land on that one just a second. Look up here. If you're counting on anything other than the person and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to commend you to God, you're on the wrong foundation. That's what he's saying here. There's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here it's referred to as the one foundation. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Gold and silver, precious stones, that's probably the good things we do in life. Clearly it is. There, everything's going to be tested by fire. What's going to happen to gold when it's tested in fire? It's going to be purified, right? There's also, we're going to do wood, hay, straw. I mean, we can only imagine what that is, but maybe something like mowing the lawn is wood. I don't know. But that's going to burn up. So all of our stuff's going to be there. It's going to be tried by fire. And if anything's left, we'll receive a reward or a lack of reward. And so the question is, it's not for heaven or hell, but I personally would like to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, rather than just made it. Because look at this. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If anyone has built on this foundation and survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but as only as through fire. Imagine someone fleeing a burning building. Personally, I would prefer, well done, good and faithful servant. So there's going to be a judgment. And nothing needs to happen before that. Nothing needed to happen in, when James wrote these words for the rapture of the church to happen and this judgment to take place. Nothing needs to happen now. It could happen this moment. So the point is, be ready. Want to develop patience? Follow the example of God's servants. That's next. Follow the example of God's servants. Look at verse 12 at the beginning. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And the rejection of God's prophets is a sad and consistent theme in the New Testament. Anyone who came and spoke in the name of the Lord, they got their mouth smashed. Jesus, in some of his most, his harshest words were left for the religious leaders of the day in Matthew chapter 23, verses 33 to 35. Imagine you're a religious leader in Israel, and Jesus says this to you. You serpents, you brood of vipers, 
How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? And why is that? Look what he says. Therefore, I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come the righteous blood, all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you, who you murdered between the sanctuary and altar. Jesus says, how you, you brood of vipers, look how you, the leaders of Israel, have, have scorned my, my people. Think of Moses. After miracle, after miracle, after miracle for the people of Israel, they grumbled and they whined and they moaned and they rebelled as he led them out of Egypt. David, hunted down like a dog by Saul, anointed to be king of, of Israel. Elijah, threatened and harassed by Ahab and his evil wife, Jezebel. Uh, Jeremiah was constantly, incessantly persecuted. He was called the weeping prophet. Uh, Daniel was torn from his home as a boy, lived a life in exile. Uh, John the Baptist in prison and on a whim beheaded, had his head taken on a platter because someone requested that of their daughter who did a dance. Think how silly that was. And Jesus, we all know how he suffered. What's James' point? The James' point is patience under trials exhibited by these faithful prophets should encourage and strengthen us to hang in there. And I, I have to admit that in my hardest times, which is nothing like any of this, but one I always looked to was the Apostle Paul. No matter how he was criticized or rejected or recused, he never was thrown off track. He just kept going. So next, be confident of the Lord's blessing. You want to be, develop patience? Be confident of the Lord's blessing. Look at verse 11a. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Remain steadfast means who endured, who hung in there. Those are faithful to the end, despite the persecutions and the sufferings that they were, we were subjected to. James says, we, all people, we consider them blessed, don't we? Surely they received a great reward. Well, the apostle Paul understood that and revealed it in the rich words of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. In verse 7, he said, to keep me from being, becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Evidently, if Paul had seen so many things and heard so many things that it would have just puffed him up. It would have made him proud. And in some way that I just, you know, I frankly don't understand God's ways a lot of times, but he was given something to torment him. Did he like it? No. Look at the verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And what was God's answer? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You want to be powerful? Be weak in yourself and strong in God. Like that last song we said, sang, God's never failed never failed me in 67 years. It may have come in a totally different way than I expected, but he's never failed me. And I hope that, I'm pretty sure that's, if, you, if you're honest, that's been your experience as well. So anyways, uh, remember uh, Paul was blessed with all this. He said, 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I know the temptation here is to think, well, Paul, you know, he had this special enablement. I really don't think so. It hurt his back just as much when he was whacked or lashed as it would hurt ours. He just hung in there. And the same power available to him was available to us. God sees differently than human be- things differently than human beings do. I think there's going to be a lot of surprises on Judgment Day personally. Not for heaven or hell, but for rewards. Because God not only judges the acts or the lack of acts, but he judges motivations and attitudes. And frankly, that's one that makes me shudder because a lot of times I do the right thing for the wrong reason. I just trust God will suffer it out there or will sort it all out, and I know he will. That's why Jesus said, many who are first will be last and the last first. Patience, 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 my friends. Next, you want to develop patience? Know God's purpose. God never does anything without a purpose. And he said here in verse 15 at the end, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord. The fifth motive for endurance of patience of trials comes from the best, one of the best known accounts in all Jewish history, that of Job. Job endured unimaginable, unexplained, unexplained sufferings, the direct, loss, the direct attack of Satan. He experienced the loss of his children, his wealth, his health, his, his, uh, his reputation. But I think what hurt the worst was he felt the loss of God's presence. He felt God just wasn't there. But it says that in all this, he vocalized his ministry. But he did not give up. And Job 122 states, In all this Job did not sin, nor did he charge God with wrong. And in Job 13, 15, Job triumphantly declared, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now God really had four purposes that we can, that we can ascertain from Job's suffering. Number one, to test his faith and to prove it genuine. Remember, it all came between an argument between God and Satan in the realms of heaven. How about my man, Job? Well, God wanted to prove that his faith was good, that it endured, that it was strong. Secondly, he wanted to thwart Satan's attempt to overthrow that faith. Thirdly, uh, he wanted to test Job's uh, faith, enable him to see God more clearly. He did and to increase Job's blessedness. We know that Job's state in the end was better than at the beginning. Uh, it's really an amazing account. And all, all four purposes will realize why. Because Job patiently endured and suffered and did not reject God. He believed God would see him through it, and he did. And because of Job's patience and faithfulness, we in thousands of years have seen his example and we can draw strength from that. So know God's purpose. I believe that's what Paul was, was talking about when he wrote Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
That's one that's a real head scratcher at times, but we know that God's eternal. And if it doesn't make any sense for this life, it's going to make sense for eternity. We have that promise. So finally, remember the Lord's character. You want to get patient? You want patience? Just think about God's character. The end of verse uh, 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In the midst of trials and persecutions, it's easy to guess, to to think God's God's not here. God's gone. He doesn't even know what I'm going through. And I think we've all been there occasionally. And, you know, it's undeniable, consistent testimony of Scripture that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we can take comfort in this. Now, the word translated compassionate, I don't read Greek, but I read commentaries. They're saying that this is the only place that this word is used in in the uh, New Testament. And it's almost someone, one commentator even thought James made it up. Kind of like we would say the Lord is super duper compassionate or stupendously compassionate. I mean, it's just he's overflowing with it and enormous capacity for it. So what's mercy? Mercy is a broad term. It refers to benevolence, forgiveness, kindness. In essence, it's receiving forgiveness and, and, uh, and love when punishment and rejection is deserved. Lord's full of mercy. If God would condemn me to hell for everything that I've done beyond my original sin, I wouldn't stand a chance any minute of any day. And neither would any of you. But God is full of mercy and he's compassionate. Uh, don't think for a minute that God doesn't know what you're experiencing. I know it feels that way that he doesn't know or doesn't care at times, but he knows and he cares. He, his compassion motivates people to go out of their way to show love and to go alongside people. It's to feel the pain of another. God is full of both mercy and compassion. So when faced with trials and persecution for our faith, we need to remember that God has this unlimited capacity to show that mercy and compassion on us and an equally great willingness to show that who love Jesus. This, in turn, should give us encouragement and allow us to go on when the times are tough. So let's wrap this up. How do we face trials patiently? We've seen it. We anticipate the Lord's coming. I can hang in there. Jesus is coming back. We, uh, secondly, we recognize the Lord's judgment. God's going to judge my works. Jesus is going to judge my works when he comes back. That should motivate me for godly living. It should help me to be patient. Well, how do you be patient? You follow the example of God's servants who showed the patience, showed that it can be done in trials and tribulations worse than any of us have experienced. And we can, uh, we can uh, be confident of the Lord's blessing, knowing that God will bless our efforts done in the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. We know God's purpose. That's to strengthen us, to purify us, to show our faith so that others can know and believe. And secondly, to remember the Lord's character, that God will never leave us or forsake us. He is full of compassion and mercy. Now, I want to conclude today with just a few Uh, personal remarks. And please understand, I would never, ever compare the things I've been through in my life 
to the things that the first century Christians endured. Now, just know that right up front. I would never. But everyone's trials and tribulations, their tests are unique to themselves. And so you really can't actually feel totally what someone else has been through. But I, living 67 years, I've seen God work things that I look back on now and think, why did I ever doubt? Um, with few exceptions, I'm a very happy guy. I really am. I've, I've had customers say to me, you're disgustingly happy from across the, the uh, computer, uh, for the prescription counter. And I'm very optimistic. But there have only really been three extended periods of time in my life when I was hopeless, that I was just sad, that I felt like I was in a pit so deep I couldn't see out of. Three times, and I'm really blessed because of that. But in each case, I felt trapped with no options because anything I did was going to cause a lot more trouble than what my circumstances were. Um, and I felt like God was distant, that God, why did he let me get into this? You know, I wasn't looking for it. It just happened. All three periods were associated with church. That's a sad commentary. And all three circumstances ended up totally different than I would have ever dreamt. Could have never come up with the solutions that happened. The first was regarding Tammy and me. We had dated throughout high school. We were planning on being married. When I was overburdened with my sin and wanted to be, be believe in Jesus for salvation, I gave my life to Jesus. Very sincere in that. But I grew up in a religious tradition that required me to, all of a sudden, as of that moment, act as if Tammy didn't exist. Now, I knew that. I still, to this day, can't understand why I was blinded to that, but I was. And here I was, my family, my heritage, my church, on the one hand, oh, will Tom remain true and faithful, or will he go back to that girl? And I thought, well, this isn't right. This is so wrong what we're doing here. And I'm not kidding you. I felt like someone was reached their hand between my ribs, tore it open, was pulling my heart out. And mainly just full of guilt. I didn't see how in the world it was ever going to work out. I was hopeless. I call it dark August 1971. And I got myself into it. It was no one's fault but my own. I knew what the church expected of converts, but that's all I knew at the time. The second was I eventually became a lay pastor in that congregation. And in a study of Bible, I realized that I no longer believed a lot of the things that I was supposed to preach and advocate. What was I going to do? Was I going to disappoint everyone? Was I going to walk away from my heritage was I going to cause turmoil in the church? What was I going to do? I was trapped. I, I used the term, I just felt trapped like a rat. I didn't know what I was going to do. And the third happened right here at Wallace Community Bible Church. We went up, up, up for 10 years. And then wham, just out of the blue, came trouble in the leadership. I've always said of that, there was plenty of guilt to go around, plenty of blame to go around, including me. But we were this big congregation, and I was just, I, I desperately did not want it to spill over into the congregation. So I had to wear a smile on Sundays. Not poor me, but you just had to. 
And it was even an undefined, it was largely undefined trouble, depending on who you talk to. I just didn't know what was going to happen. And I tell you what, if I, I couldn't sleep at night, my heart hurt, all three times. I thought, there is no way out of this. I am trapped. And eventually I just concluded, not because I was super spiritual or anything, I thought, well, God, you're just going to have to work this out because I, there's nothing I can do that I know of, that I can see. In the first case, Tammy and I have been more, married for 48 years. God turned that in a way I never could have seen, never could have anticipated. In the second case, Wallace Community Bible Church was born. Never saw that coming, my wildest dreams. And in the third case, we have Pastor Josh through a series of events that, were, that stem from that and the, the harmony and, and the love that we should have now. You see, God is faithful. He worked things out in a way that I never could have. Even if I'd have been sovereign, could have snapped my finger and fixed it, I would have never dreamt of any of the three outcomes that happened. And I say this to tell you that whatever you're involved in right now in your life or whatever you've been through, God will see you through. Just be patient. Hang in there. Don't do anything wrong. Doing wrong is never right. Doing right is never wrong. I know that sounds stupid, but think about it. Sometimes you think the ends justifies the means. No, it doesn't. God works in mysterious ways. He really does. But he has never, ever failed me, and he will not fail you. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful and clear. Lord, we thank you for the examples of those who went before us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will fill us and produce the fruit of patience in our lives, believing that this will honor you and help bring about God's will in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you've never failed me. You've showed me time and time again that you are faithful and you're able to do above and beyond whatever I could think or imagine. Show that to those who are hurting today, Lord. We ask for your blessing upon this time together. In the name of Jesus, our Savior.